It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Grimm, and in today's episode, we're going to be talking about the dramatic rightward shift in the Israeli government, and I'm joined from Tel Aviv by Avner Gavaryahu, who's co-director of Breaking the Silence, which is an organization that gives voice to Israelis who've served in the military or as part of the occupation and want to share what they've witnessed and participated in with the rest of the public. Avner, thanks for joining me and welcome to Deconstructed. Great to be here. And for folks who don't know, this podcast was founded back in 2018 by my former colleague, Mehdi Hassan. And I wanted to start by playing pieces of a monologue he did for his program on MSNBC, which is cleverly named The Mehdi Hassan Show. And I want to get you, Avner, to elaborate on what Mehdi's talking about here. Zach, can you play the first little bit? But while everyone is focusing on America's governing shenanigans, Israel just swore in what many are calling the country's most right-wing government ever, led once again by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And if you think Bibi is right-wing or extreme, some of his new coalition colleagues, some of those new Israeli government ministers, make our own House GOP caucus look like a UC Berkeley a cappella group. Case in point. Itmar Ben-Gavir, who we've told you about before, he was appointed National Security Minister. Ben-Gavir is a student of the late anti-Arab rabbi Mir Kahana, who once called for a ban on Jewish-Arab intermarriage and founded a political party that the United States once designated as a terror organization. Ben-Gavir, who lives in a settlement in the occupied territories, was convicted in a Jerusalem court of incitement to racism and supporting a terrorist organization back in 2007. He's now in charge of the Israeli police forces that monitor Jerusalem's holy sites. He's also been known to show off a photo of Baruch Goldstein in his home, the American Israeli who opened fire in a West Bank mosque, massacring 29 Palestinians. And Ben Gavir is not treading carefully. On Tuesday, just days after taking office, he provocatively visited a very sensitive holy site in Jerusalem, angering Palestinian and Arab leaders. And so, Avner, that's a reference to Ben Gavir visiting the Al-Aqsa Mosque. What's been the fallout of that visit and what power will he have as head of the police? So trying to, to sort of break down some of uh, Ben Gavir's future actions and, and the power he's, he's holding already, we really have to sort of understand a bit of, of what the situation is like already. I mean, I think that we have to take into account that there's been, and this is an understatement, but an, an, an ongoing erosion to any sort of fundamental idea, uh, you know, liberal, progressive idea, um, you know, respect to human rights, and, and even sort of the concept of upholding rule of, of law equally, much before Ben Gvir took office, right? This has been an ongoing process, mm-hmm. a variety of governments, right-wing government, center-right-wing governments, but even the last sitting government that was led by Naftali Bennett and Yari Lapid, they basically continued the status quo in the territories, which was entrenchment. And that was a government that called itself, what, centrist, center-right? 
How, how did they kind of... That's a good question. How would, how, how would they... What would they have called themselves? That's a good question because, because basically the only thing that, that this government agreed upon is, is not to talk about the elephant in the room, which is Israel's control over Palestinians are basically a military dictatorship over millions of people. And that was the only thing that allowed this very weird coalition to, to stick together. And economic issues, they were sort of center-right, and, and other issues, they maybe a bit more center-left. But generally, on, on the core issue of the region, which is our, our control, our relationship with the people under our control, the agreement was basically not to touch it. And not to touch it in our region means allowing what happened already to continue. So when we get to Ben Gvir or some of his other allies in his party or, you know, sister party like uh, Smutrich or uh, Avi Maoz, all sort of extreme right, extremely religious, homophobic, racist, you name it, they've entered into... Uh, institutions and systems that have already been pushed so much to the right. Um, so they're not going against the stream, right? But but with the stream. Uh, it doesn't mean there isn't a shift there. It doesn't mean this isn't concerning. But uh, even if you would follow a bit of the debate around Ben-Gvir, a lot of the quote-unquote opposition to Ben-Gvir, this new government, can't really point to fundamentally what they oppose with some of what Ben-Gvir is asking for. But the responsibilities that Ben-Gvir is given now is basically responsibility over the entire police, obviously as, as Minister of Interior Affairs. He has requested direct authority over the border police. Um, and part of his big push that, that didn't pass as he wanted, but part of what, where he's trying to push is to make sure that he will have a final say over the chief of police, sort of shifting a very delicate balance that wasn't really there before this moment. In the U.S. lately, we've been using the phrase saying the quiet part out loud a lot when it comes to the Trump administration. And it almost feels like somebody like Ben Gavir is a personnel choice that just says the quiet part out loud. Is, is that... Would that be an accurate way of putting it? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I, I think that it's a real sort of uh, unmasking moment where it's easy to think of the Israeli political sphere as sort of having a right and a left. But anyone following uh, the reality in, in the Israeli politics knows that's not true. For many, many years, there's a growing sort of a centrist position, sort of the radical center and, and the radical center is basically what uh, some of us call the control camp, right? Believing that between the river to the sea, there's space for only one sovereign country, which is Israel. So they're not for annexation, but they're definitely not for an independent Palestinian state, ending occupation, and so on. To the right of them, there's been growing a, a, in a very, very dramatic way, the annexation camp, right? A camp that wants not only de facto, but the Jura annexation. And this is where Benvir comes in. So we really see sort of the, the Benvir phenomenon pulling at this control camp and getting, uh, a, a, you know, many, many seats. But it's it, again, it's bigger than Benvir. It's Benvir, it's Smutrich, but it's also the Likud, it's Netanyahu's party. So in that sense, Netanyahu is the one who opened the door to this Jewish supremacist, to this racist, uh, and not as sort of a sideline position, but it's 
as many as many people have been calling this government, it's a it's it's a Ben Gvir government, and and I think that's pretty accurate. And so when when people talk about in the U.S., you know, Israel as an apartheid government, often what they mean is that in effect it's an apartheid-like system because there are people living, you know, with within its borders, you know, who do not have the same rights as other people, you know, who live in the same borders, and that's based on race and ethnicity and religion. And oftentimes the counter to that is say, well, no, it's actually an occupation. And so as a result of that, there are different rules that that apply to occupations. But when you start talking about annexation, like actual legal annexation, then you would have, uh, you know, from the river to the sea, people who are living in the same legal entity, the same country, which would then make the apartheid designation, not just kind of in effect, but but actually just by definition, apartheid. Here in the U.S., that's that's still a huge insult to throw at the Israeli government. Is that an insult over in Israel for people like Ben Gavir? Or do they are they in some ways welcoming that? Or do they still reject the the name but but embrace the idea? Yeah, I mean I I I, I think that it's uh, it's something to hold on to that it's still seen as an insult. Mm-hmm. But 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 I think that that is also eroding, like uh, many other elements and concepts. And, and and I agree with with your you know sort of your last point. People will push back on sort of the branding of of, of apartheid, but practically, uh, when when it when when they're asked or probed on it, that's exactly what they're describing. And and I have to say that as as an Israeli citizen, as as some, someone who grew up here. Who cares deeply about the people living here? Uh, you know, this is home for me. In the end of the day, to, to understand that we're not only um, walking towards this road, but 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 we've been paving it for for so many years, is is uh, is 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 sad. It's a tragedy, and and it's and it's extremely embarrassing. But but I think that the truth has to be said, uh, even though it's difficult. When we're talking about the reality of apartheid or the crime of apartheid, historically people go to sort of South Africa um, and automatically have sort of the imagery of, of, of South Africa with, you know, separate buses and bantustans and so on and so forth. But even though we can look at the similarities between uh, apartheid South Africa and, and the reality on the ground in Israel-Palestine, we also have to remember that there is a legal definition to, to apartheid. And when we talk about the legal definition, then a lot of the realities that, that groups like us have been documenting throughout the years and many other and our colleagues, both Israeli anti-occupation human rights organizations and Palestinian uh, groups as well, coupled with the leading human rights organizations around the world, I think that it's very, very difficult to argue that there isn't a systemic system of discrimination in the occupied Palestinian territories. And that and that system of discrimination is only being entrenched more and more. And if we're if if we have this system and no one can argue that we don't have two separate legal systems, that the military treats Israelis and Palestinians differently. I mean, this is basically the, the, the epitome of the entire system. If we're upholding this reality, and if we're moving from a de facto to, to de, de jure reality, then, then we're, we're basically opening a door, not only talking about 
uh, apartheid in the territories themselves and to the Israelis and Palestinians living there, the difference there between the Israelis and Palestinians. But definitely the processes that this government are leading, I think will, uh, you know, end this sort of argument is there an apartheid only in the occupied territories or in all of Israel if we're moving to annexation and this is what the government has promised then the reality of apartheid definitely goes beyond the OPT the occupied Palestinian territories and earlier you mentioned one of Ben Gavir's allies uh Basilel Smotrich uh, Zach can can you play Medi's clip about him real quick also appointed to the new Israeli government, Bezalel Smotrich, the new finance minister. Smotrich, like Ben Gavir, lives in an illegal settlement. He supports the Israeli annexation of the occupied West Bank. But Smotrich has also voiced support for evicting Palestinians from that area and demolishing their homes. Perhaps even more shockingly, he once advocated for segregating maternity wards, tweeting, Arabs are my enemies, and that's why I don't enjoy being next to them. And so, Avner, what is... The situation with ev- with evictions, uh, yeah, I, there's I know there's a uh, there's been an ongoing battle around South Hebron Hills. Can you talk talk a little bit about that and also what's going on in in Area C, the West Bank? Yeah, so I I uh, you know I've I've been part of breaking the silence more or less ever ever since I finished my my military service. So obviously I grew up in Israel and served for three years. I, I was a served as a paratrooper in a special ops unit. And most of my service was in Nablus and Janine, or cities sort of more the northern part of the West Bank. But we were sent for a few weeks to do regional guarding duty, which was sort of seen as a bit of like grunt work for young soldiers uh, at the time in, in an area that I didn't know so well, which uh, is called the South Hebron Hills. And we were basically sent to guard Israeli settlements in this area, which is uh, an area really in the most southernest tip of the West Bank, really south of of Hebron. And uh, while we were guarding settlements and outposts, right, settlements are illegal under international law. Israel reads international law differently, but they're definitely illegal under international law. And additionally, there are outposts or unauthorized outposts that are illegal, both under Israeli law and under international law. We were guarding both of the the settlements and the outposts, right? So you have Israeli soldiers guarding what is seen as illegal under Israeli law. These outposts, obviously, the settlements are connected to water, electricity, infrastructure, roads, schools, you name it. Now, uh, where in the shadow of these communities, you have dozens and dozens and dozens of Palestinian communities. These Palestinian communities uh, that um, are in Area C, 60% of the West Bank, an outcome of the Oslo Agreement under direct both municipal and security control of Israel, are unrecognized by the Israeli authorities, which I think is just amazing, even though these communities predate the Israeli occupation and predate, many of them, the establishment of the state of Israel. And because they're not recognized, their construction, in most cases, is seen as illegal under Israeli authority. They are, in many cases, and this is the case in the South Hebron Hills, many of these communities are, today, in 2023, not connected to water, not connected to electricity, uh, not connected to roads. Specific 12 communities live in an area that Israel declared as a firing zone. What does that mean to to be a firing zone? Basically, it means an area that Israeli soldiers can train in. 
So you'll have APCs, armored personnel carriers, train in fields of wheat of Palestinians. You'll have helicopters being sort of uh, soldiers being dropped out of helicopters in, in, in inside communities. You'll have patrols of soldiers making their presence felt. But beyond that, uh, Supreme Court hearing, and this is, again, to understand how embedded this reality is into the Israeli system of control, the Israeli Supreme Court greenlighted a massive eviction after many, many years of back and forth in the Israeli courts that will basically give the ability of any Israeli government to evacuate over 1,000 Palestinians from this specific area. If this happens, we're talking about the biggest mass eviction that we've seen basically since the 70s. Now, I got to know these communities really through my service there, really learning and understanding how much I didn't understand about what's happening underground. With Bezalel Smutrich entering, uh, not only as Minister of Finance, but also having the authority over a body called the Civil Administration, which is a military body that administrates Palestinian lives, we're talking about a, a threat that isn't only going to continue what we've seen up until now, but basically giving one of the most right-wing extremists, as we've just heard, the keys to decide the fate of uh, thousands of Palestinians and the fate to decide about the Palestinians living in the South Urban Hills and Masafariata. So this this thousand plus person community, which has been living with Israeli soldiers training in their midst, how long have they been living in this area? So this was part of the of this very long court case that's been going on for many many years, and you know like. Um, Many cases that we see throughout the world with sort of native communities, there's back and forth sort of um, between the Palestinians and their attorneys and, and, the, and the state on basically the mere facts. So there's been a lot written about this and, and, and sort of a lot of sort of probing into the history of these communities. Um, what, what we know to be factual is that these communities date back, some of them hundreds of years, sort of communities that left from the larger cities, from Yatta and Hebron into the rural areas. There are aerial photos predating uh, the Israeli occupation, and there are historians, Israeli historians, that have met and, and with these communities before Israel occupied the territories. So uh, we're talking about communities that have deep roots in this area, and uh, even just visiting them, this reality is pretty evident in, in the way these, these communities live. The, these communities are called cave dwellers, because unlike nomadic communities that the region also knows, these communities have been living not only off the land, but in the land. They have been carving, historically carving these caves and water cisterns and, and really embedded uh, in, into the land. And the, the history of the South Hebron Hills is really uh, very much connected to the history of these people. And if they are evicted, where do a thousand plus Palestinians go? Like what, are they just scattered to the winds? Where, where, do, where do you suspect these folks wind up? I mean, I, I hope I hope they'll be able to stay on their land. That's 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 what I think we have to fight for. And I think uh, 
there's been a pretty amazing sort of movement of Israelis, internationals, welcomed by the Palestinians there to, to stand with these communities and, and highlight their stories and, and do what we can to make sure, you know, people hear about Misafiriata and, and fight to save Misafiriata and, and, and this is uh, in this area, this firing zone. If we look at the sort of more recent history, there were attempts in nearby areas um, to the firing zone around the years 2000 to literally uproot some communities. In some cases, entire communities, including their their flocks and 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 you know, women, children, were just uprooted, homes demolished, and they were put on trucks and thrown to uh, a junction, basically pointed into the direction of of the nearby sort of urban area called Yata. So that's definitely an option. I think another option, as we've seen in other places, is maybe an attempt to sort of come to some sort of agreement and, and offer them a, another area, from what I understand from the community, that's not something that they're interested in. They want to live on their own land. And we do know that in other places where this was put on the table, you know, land usually has history to it, so they don't want to take anyone else's land either. So I think the the fear of these communities in Saferiata and the firing zone and, and the reality for Palestinians all over Area C is 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 definitely of, of grave concern to many of us. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I noticed that Netanyahu, in his Twitter thread announcing what the program of his new government was going to be, mentioned that he was going to be building an an immense number of new homes and new apartments, and then also was going to be encouraging Jewish migration from around the world to Israel. Uh, What is it about the, the South Hebron Hills that is so attractive to settler developers is it is it that this is a wide open space where they can fulfill that agenda are they running out of space to build enough homes and apartments for the migrants that they hope to attract so i think first of all we have to remember that the 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 settlement project that started you know right after the six-day war you know, right in 67 and, and, you know, places like Hebron already in April 68, we had settlers moving in, you know, was, was, was aiming or imagining to have over 1 million settlers in the territories, or as they will call it, Judah and Samaria by the year 2000. That, that didn't happen. We have to remember that, that it's true that the Israeli population, the Israeli 
Israeli citizens, definitely Jewish Israeli citizens are going more to the right, but they're not flocking to, you know, by the hundreds and thousands to live in the in the territories. It's definitely, we, we definitely might see a change or a shift as this government will not only support the settlement project, as many did, but really incentivize uh, movement there. I think that uh, we, we see construction or we see the settlement moving really trying to expand its uh, settlements and outposts all over the West Bank. I do think that the, the South Hebron Hill specifically has become sort of an, an important center for the settler community for, for you know, some of the reasons are what, what, they're, what they see as their sort of strategy in disconnecting Palestinians from Israel proper, you know, from 48 to 67. Uh, some of it has to do with the connection to historical areas or ancient Jewish Jewish communities that lived there in the past, definitely like Hebron, but in other places as well. But some of it has to do also with having the ability to build a cheap house not too far from Beersheba, not too far from Jerusalem, and, and live with a beautiful view. So I think that it's always sort of a combination of, 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 those, of those elements. And um, you can also see a sim- similar kinds of struggles in other places in the West Bank, but definitely the South Hebron Hills is, is one of the places to keep our eyes open on. And I will, I will add to that that uh, one of the things that we've seen over the past two years now is an increase in settler violence. The past year, there were maybe the, the, the highest years in numbers of attacks. And, and, and this is something that we see pretty systematically in areas like the South Hebron Hills. So c- coupled with sort of the ideology or the economical issue, uh, you also have, uh, you know, not small groups of extremely violent Israeli settlers that are using their, their might and force, in many cases backed by the Israeli military, to, to entrench themselves. And, and speaking of the military, Zach, can you play the, the clip on Avi Mausel's and then there's Avi Maoz, who will become a deputy minister in charge of the curriculum at some Israeli schools. Maoz is openly homophobic, calling same-sex relationships deviant and abnormal, while his party's website supports gay conversion therapy and objects to women serving in the military. Yes. So I wanted to ask about the military. First of all, is this, is this push to ban women from serving in the military a fringe position? Because my understanding is that Israeli public has been very proud of its universal military service. So this would seem to be taking things you know, pretty radically in, in the opposite direction. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, I think that, you know, s- some of the uh, wishes and wants of uh, Smotrich, Ben Gvir, and Maoz, a uh, good chance that they will happen, uh, especially when it, when it comes to, you know, what we just discussed, uh, treatment of Palestinians on both sides of the Green Line. And other minorities. I think that um, some of Noam's, this is the party that Avi Maoz runs, um, is is a fringe even within the right. But but I do think that that even though I, very hard to see, uh, definitely not banning women from from military service or or combat positions. But even even uh, sort of lesser actions that that will be demanded by Maoz, I think will will meet a pushback even within the military itself. But but I think the the fact that Netanyahu allowed someone like Avi Maoz, a, um, an open homophobe and obviously racist and and so on, you know, to to gain so much power, talks about this 
this this point that we're in in the Israeli political sphere and how much Netanyahu, right? And in the end of the day, you know, both Smutrich, Ben Gvir, and Moz are in Netanyahu's government. How much Netanyahu was willing to to give them or, or or pay, even in places where fundamentally his his base or his voters disagree, I think shows the place that Netanyahu was in and and his maybe even hysteria in in his need to form a a far right coalition that will allow him to move forward with a lot of what he wants, but definitely in protecting him with against his indictments. I, I also want, wanted to ask you for your, for your analysis on why it is that kind of Israeli politics has moved, you know, so steadily over the decades to the right. And what, like, what, what is it about the construction of the state? Is it something about being an ethno state that just over time pushes the state in that direction? Is it something about, universal military service and having people, you know, participate in this brutal occupation that then, you know, grinds their politics to the right as they re-enter civil society. I know I've I've seen you talk about that a little bit in the past, but I'm I'm curious if you think this was inevitable or if there if there were, you know, hinge points that where things could have gone gone differently or if it, this was just the destiny of of the state. I mean, I have to say and this will you know, answer your question, but also connect it to, to Maoz or Smutrich or Benvir. I grew up in the in the religious uh, community in Israel, what we call religious nationalists or religious sciences. I went to yeshiva till twelfth grade. You know, the, the the people I care most deeply about, and I really sort of appreciate their thoughts. You know, close family, friends, and so on are are still a part of the religious community. I don't think that, uh, in the same way that I don't think that religion or religious Jews, for that matter, you know, have to find themselves in the Avi Maoz position, right? There's other models, there's other leaders, other teachers. Uh, I have to say, I don't think that is this. I, I think in, in the same way about the state of Israel generally, and and there were other models, and 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 there is a vibrant active, energetic civil society community, you know, artists, writers, thinkers, politicians who are, who have been and are fighting this. With, with that said, and, and definitely, you know, break, breaking the silence is, is part of that and, and, and we're proud to be part of that. With that said, I think that there are elements that we cannot ignore with the formation and the history of this place. And, and I think that not, not only do we have to recognize our current responsibility over uh, millions of Palestinians that we're controlling by force and the, 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 the sort of um, an, an Israeli saying that has become a bit of a cliche, kibush uh, mashchit, occupation corrupts, I think is, is something that is, is, is so clearly true and, and visible in, in what we're seeing in Israel today. I mean... You can't understand Ben Gvir and Smutrich without understanding where Ben Gvir lives, which is Hebron, right? And as Madi mentioned in his monologue, the support of Ben Gvir of people like Goldstein, right? A, a, a mass murderer who killed 29 Palestinians. But, but 1967 isn't the whole story. We also have to look back to 48. And, and, and I think even before that, and understand that in the end of the day, 
the state of Israel wasn't created in a land without the people, for, for the people, for a people without the land, right? I mean, that's one of, that's a myth, that, that, a dangerous myth. You know, I live in Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv is adjacent to Yafo. The history of Yafo and the history of Hebron and the history of Ramle and Lud are things that we, we cannot and should not ignore. And, and I think that part of the silence that we want to break has to do with our military service in the occupied territories Israel controlled to control over after 1967. But the silence around the Israel occupation is not the only silence that we're walking around with. Right? When we're talking about the Israeli war of independence, this was the Palestinians' Nakba. These are things that we have to, we have to remember and we have to teach ourselves and, and we have to teach uh, our communities. And, and I think as long as we will ignore this history and sort of embolden this imbalance of power, then our ability to live up to any sort of ideals of equality, justice, or you know, even just the basic concept of, of a real democracy, we'll never really be able to, to, to live together. I was, was going to ask Zach to play the last part because it gets into the U.S. role here and the role of global global politics. So where does that leave the United States government, which is, of course, a government that sends billions of dollars in aid to Israel? U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said the United States will focus on policies, not personalities when it comes to Israel. But that's a bit of a cop-out, given the new far-right personalities are deciding the new far-right policies. The new Israeli government, for example, will be taking a different stance than the previous government when it comes to the war in Ukraine. That's right. New Israeli Foreign Minister Eli Cohen said Monday that on the issue of Russia and Ukraine, we will do one thing for sure, speak less in public. This is a break from Cohen's predecessor, Yair Lapid, who condemned Russia's war on Ukraine and said that Putin's army had committed war crimes. Russia indeed seems happy about Israel's new governing coalition with President Putin celebrating Netanyahu's return and hoping for Russian-Israeli cooperation in all areas for the benefit of our peoples. What struck me about the, the move around Russia-Ukraine was that I've always had this hunch that the Israeli right was kind of hunkering down, hoping that they could make it through this period in which the global community believes in the idea of democracy and that they were hoping that at the other end of this is a more kind of autocratic period. And I think you've, you know, with the rise of Modi and with the rise of Putin and with the, you know, et, et cetera, you, you, you see the glimmers of a potential future in which, you know, they could stop having to kind of pretend about civil rights, democracy, human rights, uh, and, and then could just lock things down. And so this, this kind of shift towards Russia in this, in, in this conflict, I thought was maybe an indication of that. What do you make of that that idea, and, and what and and how much should we read into what what Cohen is saying here? I think that, and this was definitely true in the previous government, more under Bennett than than Lapid. But I think uh, we're we're seeing just the maybe you know a deeper shift in in policy towards um, you know warming towards Russia, or or maybe you know I don't know if we could uh, talk about a total shift in policy yet but but definitely the sort of uh, fear of sort of uh, losing the Israeli Russian relationship which sort of has geopolitical connections and obviously 
Iran is in, in the background there and, and so on and so forth. But, but I think that the warming up to Russia, again, is sort of built on you know, some of the history of, of Netanyahu's legacy. This government was formed after Israel's fifth election in a very short period of time. And in, in some of the first rounds, the, the billboards that Netanyahu and the Likud had up all around Israel were basically pictures of Netanyahu with Donald Trump and Netanyahu with Putin. And the pictures had a sort of a slogan that Netanyahu is a league of his own, basically. And, and I think that uh, Netanyahu very strategically has really built ties with uh, illiberal democracies or, or, or countries that are definitely non-democratic. We remember Netanyahu's connections to Bolsonaro and obviously Orban in Hungary, Duterte. Um, so, so I think there's definitely, definitely a trend here. I, I think that Russia and Ukraine actually pose a bigger challenge to the Netanyahu government. And I think it will be interesting and, and worthwhile sort of paying attention there. But um, I, I think part of the, of, of the challenges, which you know, should, should also be on the table, that a lot of the way the world will treat Putin, who is taking control of territories with a military force, maintaining a military occupation, will reflect on, on, on Israel and our occupation over Palestinians. And, you know, there's... Yes, comparisons, no comparisons, but this is something that many are paying attention to, and I think that uh, Netanyahu is as well. Although, although the way the world is implementing those sanctions has a lot to do with the way that the United States is insisting that the world imp- implement those sanctions. And so I'm wondering if, does the Israeli right sort of take U.S. domestic support for granted? That Do they feel like they have, they're, they're so locked in here that nothing that they do on the ground there will shake that? I think that there is that there is that notion uh, in in big parts of the Israeli right, the center right. I would say definitely, definitely taken for granted. There's a, there was a, a tape leaked or not not clear it was leaked by when Netanyahu was in conversation with Noni Moses, who is a publisher of one of the bigger Israeli newspapers. One of his cases of indictment. And this is when Israel formed one of its most, the last time Netanyahu formed a very right-wing coalition around 2015. And the publisher of the newspaper asked Netanyahu in this recording that came out, aren't you scared of the reaction of the world to this right-wing government? And Netanyahu answers, I think very tellingly, says something along the lines of the world doesn't really matter. There's only one country that matters, and that's the U.S. So Netanyahu feels that he understands the U.S. and that he has the support he needs from the U.S. to to move forward with his actions. And I think that this makes the role of the U.S. so much more important. You know, I uh, walked around with a gun, with helmet, with sometimes uniform, all made by the USA, right? I mean, the the involvement of of the U.S. is is, is not only in, in financial support, but literally half of the Israeli army walks around with M16s, which are you know made by the US. Um, so the involvement is very deep. And I think that uh, in that sense, the responsibility of this administration, for sure, is to be very clear to this uh, government that um, you know we could talk about you know the personalities versus 
the policies. But now it's not about personalities anymore. The policies are on the table, right? The, it, this Israeli government wants to move forward with formal annexation and, and a bunch of other things. Uh, and this is being done uh, with the backing of the U.S., if we'd like that or not. And I think that uh, if there is one capital that Netanyahu and members of his cabinet will pay attention to, it's Washington. Well, Avner, thank you so much for joining me. I deeply appreciate it. Thank you so much. With a pleasure. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. That was Avner Gavaryahu, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give, where your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. Please go and leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcast at theintercept.com. Thanks so much and see you soon.